Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Bittrex CEO Bill Shahara is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. Bill spent 11 years at Microsoft and then went to both BlackBerry and Amazon to work in security engineering before becoming an entrepreneur. Though Bill started mining Bitcoin in 2011, he didn't start thinking about a business in cryptocurrency until 2013. He and his two co-founders built Bittrex while working their day jobs for several years, and now it is the premier U.S.-based blockchain platform. Bill and I have recently spoken on a panel together about company culture, and I'm excited to talk about the incredible company that he continues to build. Welcome, Bill. Thank you for having me. I'm super psyched. Um, We started talking before this, and I was like, I'm going to be the person who asks you questions that are pretty elementary. So this is a subject that's so big, and I'm hopefully not boring you with my questions. But I'm going to start with firing you with rapid fire. You ready? Yep. Okay. (laughs) If there's a book written about your life, what would the title be? Oh, That's a tough one. I'm starting you off with a tough one. Um, Probably about how I fail constantly. (laughs) Fail constantly. That's a good title. Don't steal it, people. Um, Okay. Morning or night person? night. Me too. Favorite city? Vegas. (laughs) Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Favorite subject in high school? Ooh, um, I like U.S. history. Yeah. And what was your first concert? Oh, God, this is embarrassing. (laughs) That's why we ask. New Kids on the Block, back in (laughs) eighth grade. Okay. And what about, um, what's your favorite movie? Dude, where's my car? <laughs> okay. Um, what is your favorite book that you've ever read? Ooh, favorite book. You have to sound smart now. Oh, yeah. You're coming terrible. from Backstreet Boys. You know, one of the uh, – I I like uh, Good to Great. So that's uh, one of those business books. Um, I've uh, heard that that's a really good book. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about, because I like to ask about books, and then I write them down, and then I accidentally throw the pieces of paper away, and I'm like, we have to make a best of the mm-hmm. books that have been recommended on the podcast. Have um, Oprah book list. A, yes, a, an Oprah book list. We just had, um, oh, what was the book that was just recommended? It was um, not Minimalist. What was it called? Essentialism. Essentialism. Have you read that book? No. I've been recommended that book. Okay, so I don't know much about you. Where are you from? Well, my dad was in the military, so I was born in California, and then I grew up um, in my elementary, actually not elementary, pre-elementary years in Hawaii. Then we got stationed in Japan, so I grew up, uh, I did elementary school in Japan, moved back to Hawaii, did high school in Hawaii. Where in Hawaii? Um, I lived in Oahu, on Oahu, so... Did um, you go to Punahou? Did not go to Punahou. I went to Iolani. Okay. So it's much better school. Really? Really. Okay. I don't know about the Punahou people listening, but they seem to be pretty proud of Punahou. Is that a private school or a public school? It was a private school. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that where your family still is? Yes. My family still all lives out there. And you um, were born here? Uh, Yeah, in the United States. Yeah, I was born um, near Sacramento. Nice. And so tell me about your childhood. It sounds hard for an introvert to be moved around a lot. Was it hard to break into new groups and friends? Um. Well, it was easier because we did it at like times that were it was natural. Yeah, so, like freshman year. Exactly. Yeah. And then when you're when you go to school with a lot of other kids in the military, like everybody is kind of moving in and out, so people get used to having to build new friendships. Mm-hmm. So it's actually not that bad. Like it's very rare that you'd come into a school and there was like a well organized clique of some kind. Mm-hmm. And so your dad was in the military. So is that when I think of that, I think of like strict. Is he a strict parent? Uh, he actually wasn't uh, very strict. He was uh, he was uh, fairly relaxed. And, and are you more like him or your mom? I think I'm more like him than my mom. But they're actually both like really interesting and great people. What so, makes them interesting? 
So my mom uh, in particular, like she didn't speak any English when they got married. So she met my dad when, you know, he was stationed in Korea in the military and they, they, uh, they married and um, her family actually disowned her because he was Japanese American and she was Korean. At that time, it was around the Vietnam War. So it hadn't really been that long since World War II when Japan had conquered Korea. Right. So I think there was a lot of still uh, bad feelings, especially in my mom's parents' generation and her, gra- and her grandparents. Mm-hmm. So uh, they disowned her. And then she moved to the United States where she didn't speak the language. She, you know, it, it was really challenging for her. But in the time, like she not only learned how to speak English, but then she uh, learned to speak Japanese as well because she worked um, when we were in Hawaii, there's a lot of Japanese tourists and she worked in a job where she needed to communicate with Japanese people. So she learned to speak Japanese. That's a hard language to learn. And then she really like she started from being like basically like a cashier at like a fast food place to running, uh, being in like a management position where she ran a whole bunch of restaurants in Hawaii. Wow. And so like it's really actually inspiring to see like how much she grew in the time that like, you know, I was around. Yeah. Oh, for Um, sure. And you have siblings? Yeah, I have a younger sister. And so having a mom like that for for a boy or a girl Mm -hmm. is super inspiring. I mean, everything that you're describing is like learning a new language, going up Mm -hmm. the ranks, raising children. Your dad's traveling during all of this? Uh, No, actually, my dad didn't travel all that much because um, usually when you get stationed someplace, you're pretty much like there. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly doesn't travel the way that I travel. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he was just he was kind of he he was very laid back. He didn't seem to stress about a lot of things. Like he's a very calm, kind of even presence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about my parents when we were growing up is that my house was where everyone hung out. So um, after school, everybody from the high, you know, all my friends from the high school, we all hang out at my place, play video games. A lot of kids would eat dinner at, at my place yeah. and then go home. That's um, the best. My house was that house too. And I want, I'm trying to create that for my kids. Are you mm-hmm. still in touch with a lot of your high school friends? Absolutely, yeah. So and when I go home, we all get together. In um, and home is Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. And did a lot of them just never leave? Um, a lot of them actually left, and then they made the choice to go back. Yeah, that's like Seattle. People come back. I left mm-hmm. for almost twenty years and then came back. Um, and so you went to USC. Mm-hmm. I almost went to USC. Did you love it there? I did. It was a great. School. How did you choose USC? Uh, so that's embarrassing. But not as embarrassing as Backstreet Boys. No, so not good. as embarrassing as that. I wanted to be an architect. So I, you know, I, I studied, I had a mentor that was an architect and then kind of did a survey of, of schools that might be good fits and have a great architecture program. So USC had a great architecture program and they also did early admissions. So I applied and then before it was time for me to apply to any other schools, they accepted me. So I said, that's it. I'm done. Oh, that's not embarrassing. That's a great story. Well, is that the embarrassing part? Yeah, because I feel like, you know, I, maybe I sold myself short. Or I was super lazy. So so USC, you wouldn't put in the category of like a life choice that you would regret? No, no. Um, so because what ended up happening is over the, the summer before I went to school, I interned with an architect and realized after interning there that I did not want to be an architect. Didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wasn't going to be an architect. So the first day before classes started, I dropped architecture and stumbled my way into computer science. So you studied computer science in school? I did, yeah. And had you ever learned anything about coding before? It sounds like you were no. gaming a little bit. Maybe yeah, in I high played school. video games, but yeah. I definitely didn't do any coding. Um, did it come just... naturally to you? Are you good at it? No. No. So at the time when I was in school, it just did not come naturally to me at all. Mm-hmm. And um, but I forced my way through it because I knew that um, this was like 93 to 96. Like I knew that if I could just force my way through computers, I'd find a job. Yeah. And, you know, and it was very obvious that that was where the whole world was moving. Yeah. In this direction. And now more than ever. It's so funny because you just brought up two things that remind on a couple nights ago, I spoke to a group of high school seniors about kind of how to think about their lives. And I was talking about internships and I said, internships are a great, great way to like check the box and say, what, oh, I thought I wanted to be this and now I don't want to be this. And then I also was talking about majors and I'm like, you can't go wrong these days with a CS degree. Everything's technology mm-hmm. now. And so what brought you to Seattle after USC? So after USC, I went there for three years mm-hmm. and 
I almost graduated and actually didn't graduate, but I was able to find a job. So my dad had a friend who had a tech company in Hawaii and said, hey, you should talk to this guy. So I ended up getting a job at their company. I worked there for four years. And one day I just decided like I needed to change because I felt like um, I was pretty much at the peak of where I was going to go with my career in Hawaii because it you know, in, not a big tech scene. Yeah. In, in 96, all the tech startups were out here in Seattle or in the Bay Area or even some in L.A. There wasn't much of a tech scene in Hawaii. So by the time it was like 1999, I thought I just needed to, a change. Like if I really wanted to get heavy into tech mm -hmm. and advance my career, I needed to move. And so I interviewed with a few companies out here and I was lucky enough that Microsoft, uh, you know, offered me a job, and I moved up here in November of 2000. Yeah, and was that a pretty grueling interview process with Microsoft? It was definitely not. I didn't think it was, and mainly because I think it was just the right fit for me. Yeah. So Did you love Microsoft? I loved it. I had a great time working there. How would you describe your experience there? How long were you there? I was there for 11 years. And you literally look like you're 12. I don't know where, <laughs> when all this time is happening. I'm like four years, I'm doing all the math. And then you said, you're great. Okay. You're older than you look. Yeah. I'm, I, I feel a lot older as well, but I, um, I was there for 11 years and I thought it was, it's just an incredible place to work because it was, at least when I first started, um, it wasn't a place where there were titles. So to me, this actually is reminiscent of like how Seattle is in general. You just walk down the street. You just don't know that the guy that you're, that's coming, you know, walking next to you or whatever. <laughs> yeah, is, it's a billionaire. Yeah, as a billionaire or not, yeah. right? Like it's, it's, you know, it was very kind of humble there. And a lot of extremely smart people with all just normal titles. Like mm -hmm. the same title that I had, some guy who had been at Microsoft for, you know, 12 years, um, you know, was a multimillionaire you know, invented crazy things at Microsoft would have the same title as me. Yeah. And so you just never knew who you were talking to based off their title or, or based off their name. And so it was kind of a place where you just respected everybody. Interesting. Um, and did you feel that it was e an easy place to innovate and make your ideas heard? I think, yeah, I thought so. It's a place where if you're smart and aggressive, mm -hmm. that's very much rewarded in the culture. Yeah. And so how did they end up losing you? Um. So by the time I got to, so one of the things that I learned about myself and about uh, career growth, so when I talk to people and mentor them, it's that you have to recognize when you're not growing. And Microsoft is a bunch of little companies in it. And most people who are moving through their career at Microsoft at a rapid pace is moving from group to group. And I definitely didn't do that. I think for every job that I was at, I stayed one year longer than I should have. And so, you know, it builds, you get some complacency, you realize you're not challenging yourself, and then you get into this like a little bit of a spiral where you're not happy. Like mm -hmm. the job's not challenging you, it's not fulfilling, you're not happy, and then it further impacts your performance. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I left, it was just, I needed a change. And a friend of mine had just left Microsoft and went to BlackBerry. And he said, hey, come out here. What year was this? I need your help. This was like 2011. Okay. Yeah. I was a huge BlackBerry user before yeah, my iPhone. They, they did a lot. So 2011, so you went to BlackBerry. How did you choose BlackBerry? Well, like I said, my friend was there. And but I mean, just said, did you decide to just go there or did you do the whole due diligence of now that I know I'm going to interview, I'm going to look at a lot of different things? Um, no, I definitely didn't look at a lot of things. So yeah, You're I, kind of the dream candidate. <laughs> you're like one and done on USC and then BlackBerry. Too. So I, yeah, I basically, um, he sold me on it. You know, he explained what it was like working there, um, what their culture was like. Mm -hmm. And um, it really felt like it would be a good fit and that they had interesting challenges that I thought I could make an impact on. So mm -hmm. it really didn't take much. And, you know, obviously they're going to pay me more. So what types of challenges were they working on? And what about the culture drew you in? So they were building new product lines um, around security that they hadn't had before um, as they were moving to like these new phones. And they really needed somebody to um, take what was a research project at this time and really turn it into a, a full product and get it integrated into the phone. And, you know, that 
like working on that scale was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from a culture perspective, like, you know, you think about today's world where your privacy matters a lot and all these companies are getting hacked, right? Like your banks are getting hacked and your, you know, your, your private details are getting linked out to all these different countries and all these different people around the world. You know, one of the things that I really admired about BlackBerry is that they took security really seriously. So, you know, in terms of like, in terms of scale, the security team at BlackBerry was probably the same size as the security team at Microsoft. Wow. But that was 10% of the company at BlackBerry versus like like less than 1%, you know, mm-hmm. some small uh, tenth of a percent at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And so the scale at which they put resources into and really took that seriously on behalf of their customers was something that I don't think exists out in the um, on the world today. This might be, again, these like ridiculously... Um, unsophisticated questions, but if somebody's thinking about security, I mean, today it's a huge problem. What's the first thing that they should do to protect their company as far as um, hacking and all the cybersecurity stuff? Well, I think the first thing is to make sure you have experts on staff and you take it seriously from the start. At what size company? Um, I don't think it matters. Like, I think like if you're three guys in a garage and you're building the next application, you at that point in time, you need to be thinking about security. Like the wrong time to think about security is when you have a million users, mm-hmm. right? Because at that point, if you get hacked, then you've damaged a million people, right? Like, yeah. And and if you really think about like our ethical responsibility as leaders of our companies, like we should be taking this seriously from like the time you get your first customer. And yeah. so, I think it's I think people often bring in expertise after they've been hacked. Of course. And that's really the wrong time to do it. Like at that point, you've damaged your customers, you've damaged your brand, and you could have saved yourself all that pain if you had invested in it right up from the beginning. So you, what you would call a security engineering expert? Yeah, or just the mindset, right? Like if you you tell people that at the outset, our company culture respects our users' privacy and protects our, our users' assets, Right. If you build that as the foundation of the company, then every employee that joins is going to hear that mm-hmm. and is going to take steps to learn what that means. Yeah. And we'll also at least ask the question as new features are being developed or new services are being provided to your customers. Right. He'll say, you know, I should think about the security of this or ask somebody else in the company for advice on the security of this yeah. before we start putting it into the market. Yeah, I think that it's it's crucial and it seems like it keeps coming up a lot more than ever lately. And so BlackBerry, um, you respect it in that way. And what about your role? Did you feel that kind of challenge you were looking for? It was. It was a great challenge. Um, So I went through like multiple different roles while I was there. So I ended up um, running an engineering team and then running all of what was called security response at uh, BlackBerry. And it was, it was great. Like I think if if it hadn't have been for, um, you know, their, them continuing to lose market share, mm-hmm. um, you know, I might still be there. Right? Yeah. And so did you get recruited by Amazon? Is that how you ended up there? Yeah. So my friend who brought me to BlackBerry <laughs> then went to Amazon. Who is this person? That's an said, influencer for you. And, uh, and asked me to move to uh, Amazon. And which department at Amazon or and which which area? This was in the uh, IT security team. Okay. So I ended up going from security at BlackBerry to security at Amazon. And um, is security at Amazon kind of cover the whole company, or do they do it department by department? Um, so this team in particular did, um, they set the policies and they build things that are uh, generic, like generic security tools that will help everybody at the company. Mm-hmm. And then individual teams are responsible for their own security. Got so it. So we're like an advisor. We were like an advisor. And we tell them, like, these are the rules. This is what we need. This is the goal that we need you to get to. Mm-hmm. And we're here to help you figure out how to get there in the most efficient and secure way. Yeah. And if there's people that are listening, like companies that might be the size of Fuel Talent, where we're a small business, um, these are things that people just outsource, right? Bring in a consultant mm-hmm. and just make sure that their that their assets are covered and that their customers are covered. Well, I think... Consulting is still a great way to go about security, especially if you're small. But the most important thing is making sure that people understand that 
um, the findings that this person brings back are things that you have to take action on. Right. So a lot of people bring in consultants and then ignore them or they hire a security person and it gets ignored. But, you know, you have to. It has, have, a, it has yes, to be a priority, it exactly. sounds like. Did you like Amazon? How would you compare Amazon's culture? I mean, you've had these kind of extreme and large company experiences. Right. So um, I could go on like an hour-long rant about why I did not like Amazon. Ah. Um, How long were you there? Two years. Oh, that perfect two-year mark. That's what we as recruiters target. Yeah. <laughs> and so just wasn't the right culture for you? It was not the right culture. Did you find that it was a um, great culture for learning? And, and did you feel inspired the way that you did at Microsoft by the types of people you were surrounded by? No, not as much. Not as much. Well, they're in just such a hiring binge. I mean, they have been. Um, and, you know, if you go over to their campus and you see it's like thousands of people coming through on those um, onboarding days that you're talking about. I mean, it's a whole system. Right. It's crazy. Well, their culture is a little bit different. Like, I think it really works for them, but they try to apply this monoculture across the company. So mm -hmm. everyone's evaluated on the same sets of values. They want a homogenized work environment there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, versus a place like Microsoft where it really stressed individuality to the point where you're just like straight up just competing with everybody. Yes. Right. And so it was just like a very different um, kind of company culture. Mm -hmm. And I can absolutely see why some people gravitate to Microsoft versus gravitate to Amazon. And with um, Amazon, do you feel like when you would describe somebody that would thrive there, it's the kind of person who's just ready to get beat up? Like, I've just heard so many different stories and then read that New York Times article. Did that resonate with you? I don't think, I don't think it's about getting beaten up. I think it's really about, like, do you want to come in and learn some skills, um, but get told how to apply those skills? Right. Right. It's, it's um, you know, again, it's like, I really didn't get the sense that there was, like, a spirit of entrepreneurship there, like there is at other tech companies. Mm -hmm. And did you always feel... Um, that you had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit and bug inside of you? No. 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 So, so, okay, so now we're getting to bit tricks. So yeah. how did this all come to be? So uh, it was a happy accident. Okay. Um, so I had a group of friends where we'd get together on the weekends. This or at is night. while you were at Amazon. While we were at, yeah, Amazon. Okay. And, but even before that, like while we were still at Microsoft, where we'd get together and like on a weekend, we'd like try to come up with like a cool app idea. And it was an exercise in just... Like, yeah, we hoped that we would hit on a company idea, but it was really an exercise in trying to learn new technology mm -hmm. skills, right? Like, yeah. keep current with technology. Because mm -hmm. as you, as we kind of grew in our in our um, careers, we start moving higher and higher up the management chain. You lose the kind of hands-on. Exactly. Well, it's interesting that you're bringing this up because we have a lot of clients who will um, give us job descriptions and then they start talking about the soft skills. And oftentimes they're like, we want the kind of person who on the weekends is trying to learn new code and learn mm -hmm. new languages and is just curious-minded. And it comes up all the time. And so it's funny that you're bringing that up because it it's a skill that people seek. Mm -hmm. So we did that on the weekends, and um, one day, uh, one of my co-founders, Richie, and I, we developed this website that ended up being pretty popular. Um, it's not really that important, but it was like the business before Bitrix. And as we were trying to build that business up, we said, wouldn't it be nice if we could do these other things? And that other thing was what Bitrix became. It was just like this weird happy accident. We were out in Vegas one day. It was... Uh, between Christmas and New Year's, we're out in Vegas um, playing Pi Gal and said, wow, why don't we just build a crypto exchange, right? We, we were really interested in cryptocurrency and blockchain, and we thought there could be, there's something here. We don't know what it is. So why don't we build an exchange where we can see all the different ideas and projects in the ecosystem? And that would inspire us to go build the build our blockchain or whatever our business was going to be on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. We actually didn't think Bitrix itself was going to be a viable company. <laughs> and so you, saw, you talked about Richie. So Richie's your co-founder. Mm -hmm. And then you have another co-founder? Yep. We have a, another co-founder named Rami. So once we decided we wanted to build an exchange, we knew uh, that we needed a lot more uh, intellectual horsepower than we had. Like we needed like another engineer mm -hmm. to come in. Um, because the project was just too big for two people. Rami and Richie are also engineers. Yes. So you basically have three engineering mm -hmm. co-founders. How did you yeah. decide that you were going to be the CEO? 
well, there was a basket of things that nobody wanted to do, and that ended up being my job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. And so you're in Vegas, you come up with this idea, and you said that that ended up becoming Bitrix. Is that the same business that it is today? Uh, the same well, business model? Bit Bitrix is very different today than it was back then, you know, mm -hmm. as is like I think any startup would be uh, quite different. But Where um, was it and where is it today? So when we first started... Um, I guess before, like, what it was, I guess the core foundation of Bitrix is our focus on innovation and security, but we kind of think security is just a given. Like, you have to do security well to manage people's assets. But it was really about innovation. You know, as I told you in our story, we didn't know where blockchain was going, but we were super excited by it. We thought that it could change things in the world. Like, we thought, I can see a, I can see a world where five years from now, Almost every app that you use, um, every everything that you touch in some way in your life touches blockchain. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, how do we get exposure to all this stuff that we think is fascinating and interesting? Well, let's just go build an exchange. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, like we needed more engineering horsepower than Richie and I could provide. So we brought in Rami and, you know, thankfully, we, you know, um, and that was like a great decision. Mm -hmm. Like we really needed three people to spread the load out. And um, did you quit your jobs and go do this or you did this on the side? No, or? we did it. Yeah, we did it on the side for a little while. And then eventually I quit my job. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, my two years ran up on on Amazon, quit my job. And then um, Rami, six months later, quit his job at Amazon. And then six months after that, Richie quit mm -hmm. his job. And how did you even get interested in or knowledge about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, well, so that started before I even left for BlackBerry. So when Richie and I were still at Microsoft, um, and this is where, like, I, I could tell you, like, the signs that you know you've you're you've gotten complacent and you stayed at my, you know, you stayed at one place too long. Like Richie and I would spend pr practically all of our days just talking about internet poker. Mm -hmm. So you know, we were like really into playing poker. We talked about it all the time. That's like basically what we did, not really thinking about work. Mm. So one day we stumbled upon this Wired Magazine article about Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin was just new. It was starting to be really interesting. And it was just like, I think it was the, just the novelty of it. It really kind of hit all these different areas for us. Mm -hmm. It was, there's a security component of it. There's a trading component of it. It's all of There's, your love. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we just got fascinated with it right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so, what did you read? What did you get your hands on? Um, Everything? Well, so the first thing you do is like once you see the Wired Magazine article, then the next thing you do is you say to yourself, well, how do I get Bitcoin? Right. So you go online and you read like as much as you possibly can about how do you get Bitcoin? And back in 2011, it was really hard to get Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So... And how much was it? Um, I think when we started, it was like less than a dollar, I think. Mm -hmm. And so you bought Bitcoin? Did not buy Bitcoin because it's really hard to buy Bitcoin. So the way you would have bought Bitcoin back then is you would have gone to some dark parking lot someplace. You would have had an envelope of cash. You would have handed an envelope of cash to somebody. And then they on their, their laptop would transfer you some Bitcoin. For real? Yeah. That's, that's what like it was a drug like. deal. Yeah. And That's, who are these people that have access to the Bitcoin? So back then, you could mine Bitcoin. And that's actually what Richie and I ended up doing, is we took a bunch of spare computer parts, we threw it into his garage, and we, you just ran it 24-7. And every day, you'd get like a few Bitcoin. And eventually, Richie and I had, um, had made our investment back. So we bought all these computer parts, we put together these computers, we were mining Bitcoin, and we made back our investment, which means Richie had $2,000 worth of Bitcoin. I had $2,000 worth of Bitcoin. And I think at the time that was like probably like 100 Bitcoins each, right? So Bitcoin was at 20 bucks. And then Bitcoin prices started going up. And so I think it got to about $60. And we're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We're rich. Yeah. And then it crashed. Mm -hmm. The price crashed back down to, it was like, I don't know, it was like two bucks or something. And I told Richie, you know, I think it's a fad. Like, I really don't think this thing's all that interesting. And so we stopped doing it. So we stopped mining. We stopped doing anything related to Bitcoin. I just thought it was a fad. And so cut to me, I go to BlackBerry. Richie and I aren't talking as much because we're not working together, you know, but periodically we talk to each other. And one day he messages me out of the blue and he says, hey, do you still have that Bitcoin? 
I said, no, it's long gone. I formatted my hard drive. You know, like a good security person, I do like an NSA level wipe on my hard drive before I throw it in the landfill, right? Yeah. So my Bitcoins are long gone. And he says to me, well, Bitcoin's about to hit $1,000 each Bitcoin. And so I basically formatted away $200,000. And, uh, and so that was... Uh, Holy shit. Yeah. So like I basically... You, you ha I had that like cold sweat that you yeah, of feel. Course. Like it's like a yeah, rush I'm of adrenaline. I'm having it right now. And, uh, and like, you know, felt like I was going to throw up. And then I said to him, like, we got to figure out how to get back into this. Yeah. And so that's where we started Did he hold on to his? Yeah, he's smarter than me. <laughs> Go Richie. Yeah, smarter than did, I. He t did he take you to Vegas? No, but, like, some of what that Bitcoin that we had from back then was used as, like, some of the seed money to start Bitrix. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You hadn't started a company before, so you had this idea. You had Richie. Mm -hmm. And how did you fund it? So we funded it ourselves. Like we out of the Bitcoin yeah, profits. Yeah, I mean it was like basically to start an exchange at that time, it really cost us about two thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And what is an exchange? So that's where somebody can come in with dollars mm -hmm. and buy Bitcoin. Okay. Or um or they could trade Bitcoin with other types of digital assets. And there's a whole universe of of uh, blockchains out there where people can uh, either through money directly or with Bitcoin, buy those, uh, buy little pieces of these blockchains. And what are the digital asset examples? Well, like what so else? blockchain blockchain is basically a database, right? So it's a d database where everybody in the world um, has a copy of it, and anybody in the world can participate in securing your database. Mm -hmm. And as part of that security. Um, the people who are providing security of it, and one way is mining, you get paid a little bit of tokens um, from that blockchain. So like in the case of Bitcoin, um, by securing it, by mining, mm -hmm. which is providing computing power that ensures that nobody can tamper with the blockchain, you get paid a little bit of Bitcoin. Hmm. And so that's how Richie and I accumulated 100 Bitcoin each back in uh, 2011. Yeah. Uh, but now you can't mine like you can't mine Bitcoin at home. Okay. Um, there are places in Wenatchee where it's just giant warehouses filled with computing equipment, and if you stand in the exhaust at the back of it, it feels like you're sitting on the sun. Like you know, oh. there, um, there's incredible operations out there where it's just a real it's a a business that you need to develop if you want to mine Bitcoin. But the mm. rewards are there if you can do it. It's just the capital, you know, the capital that you, you got to really, yeah, you got to invest money and time and, it's and millions of dollars to be able to mine Bitcoin now. Interesting. And so you landed on this CEO role. Mm -hmm. um, and then where are the other two co-founders? What do they do? They do engineering work. Okay. So uh, one of them is our CTO. Um, the other, I don't know if Richie has a title. He might be CIO. Yeah. Just getting shit done yeah. person. But that's basically what they do. Like the two of them are the get shit gun, uh, get shit done guys. Yeah. They, um, you know, they're the senior guys at the company that people are always asking them for advice. They provide uh, guidance. Mm -hmm. um, and then from a strategy perspective, um, that's my role is to like handle all a lot of the business agreements mm -hmm. um, and the strategic direction for all the things that we're engineering and where the company's going. And have you had any partnerships along the way or it's just you guys? Um, I mean, we partner a lot. So one of the cool things about Bittrex is that we started as an exchange, mm -hmm. but if you think about our found, the foundation of our exchange, it's built around security and we have like great engineering horsepower when it comes to Richie and Rami. So not only do we have security, but we have a lot of um, high performance uh, computing aspects of Bittrex. Mm -hmm. And so what we've kind of pivoted ourselves into now is licensing that technology to a lot of people around uh, the planet. Oh, wow. So not only do we have our exchange, but we have other exchanges in Korea and Hong Kong, um, in Europe, uh, South America, South, wow. uh, South Africa, that build their exchanges and their financial on your systems on top of our platform. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't even know how you made that happen. Are you, are you traveling a ton? Um, I mean, I do travel a bit, but we have great business development people who travel all, all the time. All the time. And so how many employees do you have now? 
Uh, we've got, I think it's over 100 now. Oh, wow. And so I know that um, we met originally on this um, panel talking about culture. How has the culture changed and how have you been intentional about setting the culture? You know, when we first started, it was the three of us. So mm -hmm. decisions were made super quick. We were, um, and because we trusted the three of us implicitly, you know, it wasn't like we were worried that anybody was going to steal anything. So right. we could make decisions very quickly. We could engineer things very quickly. And then what we put out there, we knew was going to be um, best in class in terms of the security and its performance and its ability to, to uh, meet our customers' needs. And one of the things that we found and really underestimated, I think, is that as we scaled the company, um, that wasn't scaling with us. Mm. That, you know, you start to bring more people into the company. Um, you start to realize you don't trust them the way that you trust, like, you know, the guy who owns a third of the company. So how do we start, how do we scale what we do in a world where we're bringing in people who uh, maybe this don't understand as much as blockchain, right? They're mm -hmm. enthusiastic and they want to learn, but they don't know as much about it as we do. Right. Or we don't personally know them, so maybe we don't trust them as much as we do. So it took a while for us to get to a place where um, we developed not just the company, but our internal systems where we really could scale hiring. Mm -hmm. That That took a lot longer than we thought because we hired the first 20 people into the company. And when we were at, you know, 23, 24, it was still like a very small trusted group. For sure. But we realized that if we were going to scale any farther than this, we really needed to um, rethink our architecture and lock everything down or else we couldn't grow past where we were at. Right. And so... What types of systems did you implement? I guess I'm thinking about people that might be in your same shoes mm -hmm. and at the stage where you're starting. And you're like, I wish I had known then X, well, Y, Z. So... Um, as an example, right, um, we had to, in a, in a situation where the, only the three of us have access to the database of our customers' identities, there's no reason to, like, secure it beyond that because there's only three of us. Mm. But once you start bringing in people to the company who might need legitimate business access to that uh, data, well, now you have to build a system that secures it so that they can only see what they need to see, mm -hmm. that we can audit any time that they access it. And so, you know, that, and that's where it goes beyond just the trust of three people or even the trust of 20 people. Mm -hmm. It's how do you build a company where 20 people are doing customer support and they need to see the details of a customer's account? Right. And how do you build the right controls in place? Or another example would be, um, we have a policy where um, no employee at the company can trade cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. um, except in, like, very specific trade windows. Right. And that was something where when it's Richie, Rami, and I, we just agree to it. We don't need a policy. We just – the three of us said right. we're not trading on our exchange. That's that's a bad idea to to uh, take short-term profits that might hurt our customers. Yeah. So, it's just a conflict of interest. Exactly. Yeah. And so we we decided we weren't going to do it. But as we were building out the company and growing and and uh, and gaining more people, then you have to have an official policy. People mm -hmm. have to sign it. Of you have course. to have like you know records. Retention it's all that stuff that and... sucks for people like you and I who don't want to be doing that. Exactly. Because, and you want to have it feel fluid and mm -hmm. feel um, like a family. But the more you come up with these policies and procedures, it feels a little bit bureaucratic or mm -hmm. just not natural. But it's necessary for sure to protect the company. Um, so that's yeah. that's why I think it's taken as long as it has for us to scale up. And so the company culture um, really got into a place where it was like, okay, full-on compliance, full-on secure. You know, it's like stop innovating, focus on focus on solidifying what we had, right? Yes. Like make sure all of our processes are right. And then now we're going back and transitioning back into the innovation mode where it's mm -hmm. okay. Now we can let we can let. Um, all the restrictions go away because we have all these policies, we have all these systems in place. And uh, to be able to handle any idea or any kind of uh, cool thing that someone at the company wants to do. Yeah, I love it. And so what would you say is your leadership style? Um, I mean, I I like to guide rather than really direct people. Mm -hmm. I like to see myself as a coach. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my failings is learning when 
um, somebody really needs to be told something instead of just allowing to to fail. Right. right? So because you don't want to micromanage and then you might resent them that you have to. Exactly. But that might be a way that you use as your measure of who to hire, because if you know that about yourself, then, you know, like we have to hire self-directed people who don't need a lot of feedback. Well, I mean, we do hire for that, but there's still the situations where. I know if something's wrong. Yeah. Right? You know, I've been doing it for so long. There are definitely times where someone wants to do something. It's like, well, we tried that idea or we, we've done it before and here's why it didn't work. Right. You can at least learn from, uh, from my experience. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few times where it's like, no, we just can't do this thing that you're right. talking about because there's just no way it's going to work. Yeah. And right? how, have you, how have you gone about scaling recruiting? So we have... Um, well, we have someone who runs HR for us, and she basically um, works with all the managers at the company on ensuring that they have the right recs written. And, we, and we've spent a lot of time educating all these different uh, agencies out there um, so that they understand, you know, what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is a, it is a learning process because they'll yeah. bring us candidates that sometimes are complete duds, but yeah. it's part of the feedback mechanism. And is there, is there a um, common thread among... Uh, the team as far as what makes somebody successful at Bitrix? Yeah, I think it is like the the innovation aspect, mm-hmm. right? And it's not just about like having a great idea, but it's really being able to think it through to the point where we can execute on it. Mm. We have a lot of uh, horsepower at the company to execute on any idea, but it has to be well-defined. It has to be uh, justified. Right. And so you need someone who's not just passionate about doing new things and finding, you know, and developing new ideas, but can really put that, you know, put it to paper and explain it to people. Yeah. And sell the idea and make mm-hmm. make a case for it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And are you are you similar to your co-founders in like if we took you all in separate rooms and said, what's your vision? I think from a vision perspective, we're probably in alignment, but Mm -hmm. we have very radically different personalities. And I think that's what makes it work for us. So, um, you know, like I'm very business focused. We have uh, another founder who's very technical focused. Um, We have someone who's in the middle. And then we, you know, and then there's like different levels of sort of risk, um, risk tolerance within the founders. And so I think it helps us get to good places in our decision making um, when everybody's looking at the problems and providing their voice. Yeah, I love that because they're coming at it from different perspectives and you can make sure that you're covered. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't even think of that because that's just not the way that I saw the problem. Um, what types of things are you working on right now? Well, we've, uh, you know, we have an international exchange that's spun off. Um, so there's a, uh, several people left our company to go run a brand new company in Europe. Um, so that's pretty exciting. We're just we're helping them out. Mm-hmm. And it's really like what we're developing right now is just continuing to go out and sell all of the services that we have to anyone who wants to touch blockchains. Mm-hmm. And who do right? you sell into? Well, we sell into other companies that are looking to build exchanges. Um, but really anyone right now who wants to touch blockchain that's in any kind of financial capacity. Wow. So we have some partners that are banks, um, partners that are ATM networks, mm-hmm. um, partners that are building mobile apps where people can trade or buy crypto, like uh, games. We have a lot of games that use utilize cryptocurrency that are powered by our technology. So it's, I think anyone out there who's really interested in using cryptocurrency but are probably daunted by the complexity of the technology mm-hmm. and really daunted by, I think, the security of it um, can use our services to, uh, to get the best of both, right? They can, yeah. they can get access to blockchain without taking as much of the risk because they would have to build up that skill set to be able to do it properly. Yeah, and do they need to even understand? I mean, obviously, there's a security aspect, but do they need to understand... Bitcoin. Um, they don't necessarily need to, right? But uh, but they have to be sold on the value of it. Yeah, so of if somebody somebody came to us and said, "I have a I have a game, and I now want to accept Bitcoin as a payment in our game." We can basically turnkey that for them. Yeah, we can you know it's very easy for us to go in and and make that work, but they have to want uh, to accept Bitcoin as payment. Yeah, right. And so, and they, do you guys have competitors? Um. We have competitors in the exchange space, but I think in this platform space, there aren't as many people out there trying to develop um, platform solutions for the 
for other people to access blockchains. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, like, I mean, profit margins on the exchange are very strong. If you have a, you know, if you have a profitable exchange, it's wildly profitable. So I think a lot of people aren't looking at, um, you know, how to grow the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And our focus has always been about supporting the technology and growing the ecosystem. I think that, you know, things that are good for blockchain are good for Bittrex. So, you know, we'll, so we're willing to do the, do kind of the harder things that no one else wants to do and likely make a lot less money. But I think in the long run, it helps everybody. And so we think that that's the right approach. Yeah, I like it. And so um, what are you kind of losing sleep over these days? I worry about, you know, regulation that's too aggressive. Mm -hmm. I think the discussion around what Facebook wants to do with their cryptocurrency has really gotten the U.S. government to try to more clearly define how they want to regulate cryptocurrencies. And that could go in either a positive way where, um, you know, maybe they want to have one regulator that's really... um, really wants to work with the industry, understand mm-hmm. it very well, and um, and craft good regulations around it, or they could just decide they want to ban it. And, you know, what we've seen so far in the industry, at least in the United States, is that the U.S. government's been very aggressive in trying to not ban it, but aggressively regulate it. Mm-hmm. And that's forcing a lot of innovators and people in the ecosystem to move offshore. Yes. And and I think ultimately that does like, hurt. Like Singapore? Like where are they going? Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Europe. Europe has a much friendlier regulatory regime for cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically everywhere in the world that uh, wants to become a financial center is embracing blockchain because they see this as a way to um, bring innovators in fintech to their countries because the U.S. doesn't want them. Interesting. And so a lot of what we do is just continuing to educate regulators and educate people in the United States. And this is not just a thing that Bittrex does by itself. We do it in association, um, uh, you know, as part of different associations. We do it as part of uh, different industry groups. Mm -hmm. And together, we're all out there messaging with regulators and with the government that, you know, we we want regulation. You know, we want things that will remove criminals uh, from using this technology. But at the same time, um, you're doing a disservice to American entrepreneurs by strangling it the way that they're strangling it right now. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can imagine how unsuccessful Google would have been if Google was tightly regulated while it was growing up uh, in the late 90s. Right. Right. Or or Netflix or mm-hmm. Facebook or uh, Microsoft or Amazon. Right. Right. You know, now they're, you know, super large companies. Now they're coming in. Yeah, saying, but, yeah. I mean, but they can afford it, right? They can they can afford to work with regulators. They're already lobbying. And so they've already built up a lot of the capabilities that they need to ensure that the right things are happening with their industries. Mm-hmm. But for us in the blockchain space, it's really difficult for, um, I mean, we're in a sort of different class of startup. But if you were starting a crypto business from scratch today, um, if I told you that if you wanted to be in the United States, you're probably going to be spending a million dollars a month on legal fees, like, is that no, it's not, it's is not, that worth it? Yeah, that's hard. And so um, are you spending a lot of time working on this regulation, like meeting with government officials? We do. I mean, we have, a, we have an office in D.C. for that reason, mm-hmm. where we're out. Um, people from that office are going out and working with regulators, speaking at conferences, um, and I think the dialogue has been good, but we definitely need more of it. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. This is a whole other world that you're in. Um, I'm switching gears now, and I'm just curious more about you, the person. It sounds like you're working your ass off. What do you do to um, kind of unwind and have me time? Um, well, my favorite, I mean, I hang out with my dog. So that's like. What kind of dog? Uh, it's a white miniature schnauzer. Oh, cute. He's like a. Is a yapper? He is a yapper. He's, Ugh, and he's like deaf yappers. now. So he's super old. He's that's like a bad 16. combo. Yeah. So he's deaf. He yaps a lot. He's very bossy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, that, that definitely, I spend a lot of time with him. And then um, when I'm not doing that and I have time, I like to cook. And so when I cook, I like that's your that's your creative outlet yeah. right there. That's awesome. Yeah. And I and I really take it like I I try to uh, do everything from scratch. So 
Um, so I love cooking. And so when I have time to cook, it's like a two or three hour kind of ordeal. And what do you like to cook? Um, I mean, it varies, but like uh, I've made a lot of pasta dishes. I can make like great Korean barbecue. Um, wow. Uh, definitely like a lot of kind of seafood chowders and soups. Where did you learn how to cook? Uh, YouTube. Like, a, Oh, really? Oh, yeah. YouTube's phenomenal. Like, I don't know how people learn to cook using a cookbook because, you know, oftentimes you, you look at the cookbook and it's it'll say something like, um, you know, it's got to be this color or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, or it'll say you know? something like um, mince or yeah. dice. And if you don't know what that means, you have exactly. to look up what does that mean and what size are we talking about without pictures. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. Yeah. So if you're learning how to make pasta, you just type in. Yeah. Like, make, like uh, show so me how crust, to make pasta. Right. So pie crust is an interesting one, right? Like there's tons of videos on YouTube on how to make pie crust. It's actually super easy. Mm -hmm. And most people would not think to go and do it, but it's super easy to go and make pie crust. It's there's a few now mm -hmm. apps that for cooking that, um, and I try when I cook new recipes to follow the videos also, because mm -hmm. I'm a visual person. And so it's helpful for me. So you're cooking, you're hanging with the dog. Mm -hmm. You're clearly working out or doing something physical because you're, like, in shape. I, uh, I like to snowboard in the winter. Nice. Um, and then, you know, I do some personal travel, not as much um, as before because I do a lot of work travel. But, yeah. But um, when I travel to new cities, I love looking at buildings. So that's like the— Because the architecture yeah. side of you? I still like looking at cool buildings. Um, I like going to museums. I don't like art museums. I like history museums. Yeah, that's the U.S. history side. Yeah. Well, I guess the ultimate question is, um, what fuels you? Like, what are you really fueled by? Um you know, it's it's our customers. Mm -hmm. um, we have millions of customers on our platform and really ensuring that we can provide the services and secure their assets and let the, and let them know that it's safe and protected. Right. Like that. Um, that's the thing that keeps me motivated. That's the thing that keeps me up at night. Just making sure that we're always taking care of our customers. I love it. That's awesome. Well, I've learned so much. I'm going to like, I don't even know who I'm going to talk to about this. I just need to get in on the game. So there will be more to be, to be continued. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.